Hi, I'm Ed Romain, and welcome back to Mobilizing Culture. In our first five episodes, we explored the ever-changing world of technology and how it impacts the human condition, both positively and negatively. In this chapter, we'll be evaluating the economics of technology and how entire categories of business are being altered by a handful of disruptive companies. Cargo was built upon a simple but radical notion. By reimagining the dreaded mobile ad as something artful and entertaining, we could help advertisers engage bigger audiences and also help publishers make more money. This approach didn't just make Cargo the leader in mobile image advertising. It inspired other companies and pushed the entire industry forward. Over the next weeks, we speak to disruptors in other industries, leaders who are willing to break the rules and upset the status quo in order to realize their visions. We'll hear their stories, we'll exchange ideas, and with any luck, begin to decode disruption for the next generation of entrepreneurs. Joining me this week is creative superstar, Piera Gilardi. I'm Piera. I am the executive creative director and co-founder of Refinery29. Piera's roots in business and creative collaboration started long before the idea of Refinery ever existed. I grew up in a family business, so I really always loved collaborating with people. Piera originally moved to New York City to pursue a career as a solo artist. She quickly realized, however, that she craved a more collaborative career. So she accepted an internship at City Magazine where she was able to hone her editorial skills and become involved with all aspects of running a business. At the same time, she began to help her boyfriend, now husband, Philip Von Boris, and his friend Justin Stefano with an idea they had, which was essentially, you know, creating this space to celebrate independent voices in fashion, really inspired by a lot of up and coming boutiques that we were seeing that had a super unique point of view, super unique community around them, but that weren't getting a lot of airtime in the mainstream media. Pierre connected Philip and Justin with her then boss at City Magazine, Christine Barbaric with the hopes she could help turn their idea into something more concrete. One night, the phone rang. She totally surprised me by calling and saying that she saw so much potential in the idea, but she could only, you know, really take it on if I was fully on board. So she kind of dared me to jump. Yeah, it was really flattering. And it was also exciting because I didn't necessarily, I thought it was a cool idea, but I didn't see as much possibility in it. Hmm. And maybe because I was really close to it. And so her being someone who I had learned so much from, who had been my boss, like her vote of confidence really kind of solidified my confidence in what we could do with this idea. How and when did you start to be like, wow, we can actually do something here that's going to have real staying power? I was doing it. It was fun. It was exciting for me at the time. I was inspired by it. Um, and I'm kind of someone that puts one foot in front of the other. I need to see how things feel and respond to them and then build on that. It's sort of like there's an internal compass, but it's not a, it's not like a strategic 10-year plan. Mm. Um, that's just my way of operating in the world. So, you know, in the beginning, I think we just saw that there was this amazing realm of style that was much more about self-expression um, and individuality. And what was traditionally thought of as style was fashion, which was really rules-based and very much designed to make you feel bad about yourself. So that was really our first insight with Refinery29 was that we wanted to celebrate the personal style component. We wanted to celebrate individuality. And I think what happened was that that kernel really resonated with people who were 
tired of being put into boxes, tired of being dictated to um, what they could and couldn't do and who they could be. And so it started with this small idea, but as it grew, we saw more and more potential to really lean into those topics, to challenge the status quo, to look at things that are taboo for women and culture and challenge those. And really, you know, the aperture just opened wider and wider and wider as we grew. Mm. Give me one of the, if you can, one of the early examples of a topic that you were proud of that you felt like hadn't been addressed before that was connecting to people that started to pay attention to refinery. Yeah. We did an early content package that was actually a branded partnership. Um, So some of the content was branded, some of it was editorial, and it was called The Month of Hair. And the idea was just over the course of the month, we were going to show every single day a different woman with a different um, type of hair, both texture, color, length, everything, and and have her talk about her hair. And so because modeling agencies didn't really have you know, that much diversity in terms of race, ethnicity, hair, basically. We uh, went out and did street casting. So cast people at the Madewell store. I went cast this amazing woman across the street who worked at the gym, you know, used our personal Rolodex to bring all kinds of amazing diverse women in to shoot for this feature. We were really inspired by the diversity we saw around us in New York every day and had noticed that there was just such a narrow lens of what beauty looked like in the, in the mainstream. And the response to the series was so overwhelming, you know, just women writing in the comments and emailing us and saying, thank you, thank you. I never see someone who looks like me in media or in advertising. That's amazing. So that was a that was a really early one. Like Um, we hit something. Yeah. And we saw we saw just that this was a huge opportunity and that we could open that aperture of what beauty looked like. With features like the month of hair proving to be successful, Refinery saw that a disruptive approach to their business could actually impact it positively, especially in giving focus to women who had been traditionally underrepresented in fashion and beauty. You know, in the beginning, people told us we would never be successful because we were too niche, because they thought that the things that we were talking about, the ways that we were challenging the status quo, the voices that we were bringing to the surface were esoteric. But actually what we were tapping into was this new mindset. And we were, you know, we were challenging who women could be, what beautiful looked like. We were really trying to show women as complex people. Like even when we branched out from doing fashion and beauty and, you know, health and wellness and started adding sex and politics. And, you know, when we when we added politics, people said, well, how can you write about fashion and politics? And it's like, well, do you wear shoes and read the New York Times? Right. <laughs> well, then there you go. Right. Um, but I think that that reductive view is really indicative of just these boxes that we've put women into. And for us, it's always been about breaking those down and blurring those lines and really opening up the world of possibility and options to our audience. Because um, we're, you know, our mission is to help women feel, see, and claim their power. Um, and we want to really you know, allow people to unleash their potential and see all the opportunities that there are around them. Shifting a little bit to the business side of the refinery model. So I come from the print side too. I spent some time on the female fashion side at W and and L. And I remember when you all first sort of came onto the scene, we were really watching you guys intently because one of the things that you, I thought did really well from a disruption standpoint 
was not shy away from advertising. For years, there was a real separation between, you know, what is content creation and then what what the advertisers are creating. And I'm curious to know why there was such an early adoption and done in such a really, and I hate to say disruptive again, but a disruptive way, a really mm. visually fascinating way. How did you embrace that and what prompted the decision to approach the business that way? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you. You're welcome. Um, you're welcome. So, I mean, one one part of it was that when we started, we were really small. And also the way that digital advertising was at the time, it was a scale game. In the very beginning, we signed up with some of these ad networks that, you know, bundled up different smaller sites and sold sold ads for them. But that wasn't really a lucrative endeavor. And it really limits you in a lot of ways. And so we didn't have the scale, but we were really influential. And we had a really dedicated and engaged audience. And we had a knowledge of digital creation that most brands lacked. And so we um, very early on adopted, you know, branded content as our strategy for serving different brands. And our philosophy around that was that if we, um, you know, and the team was so small at that point, Christine and I, you know, with two other people, we worked on all of that content ourselves. So we said if Did we- Did you start at three people? We started with, well, where there's four co-founders. Wow. When we started, you know, we said, you know what, if we approach this branded content and we apply the same philosophies to it that we do our editorial content. We really work with these brands to understand our audience, you know, what the audience wants, what the audience responds to. Um, then we can make this content just as captivating, just as interesting as the editorial content. So that was that was our approach, and we worked really closely with brands, and we really, you know, it took a lot of education to make sure that they they could understand that we weren't creating a campaign for them. We were creating content under the refinery. 29 brand ethos at a premium at a premium yeah. that um, that was going to drive a new type of engagement and understanding and brand affinity for them and that did end up being a huge innovation for us in the digital space it gave us um, a big advantage and it same as our editorial content we heard you know feedback from our audience over time and we continued to you know evolve the branded content to make sure that it did um, serve the audience, that it was what the audience was looking for. And that's how we did it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. It's <laughs> great to it's great to hear. So the other thing I wanted to ask is most lifestyle brands actually start with celebrity. And I feel like you guys came to celebrity after in some ways, but also did it in a unique way as well, because you've done some amazing things with celebrity that even some of them have been branded content yeah. approaches. How do you how do you deal with talent when you're doing a branded content execution? But also, what do you think brought talent to the brand? I mean, I think our mission and our ethos is what brings talent to our brand. And I think also, you know, we're really trying with with everything that we do to create really meaningful opportunities, both branded and editorial, um, for incredible women's voices. So that can be uh, signing up a woman director to our Shatterbox anthology project, which is basically funding these short, you know, women's short films. Um, we can bring Allison Williams into a KED campaign and branded content feature that also has, you know, a panel during International Women's Day. And I think it's the wealth of opportunities that we provide, the fact that we do stay really true to who we are and what we stand for. And yeah, I think our creative approach too is something that, you know, we really try and 
work collaboratively with talent and make sure that their voice is heard in the process. Um, so I think that those combination of factors and just the the range from, you know, experiential like 29 rooms to film to digital to, you know, Snapchat, like all of these things combined give a lot of different types of opportunities to talent and we have a lot of different ways to help them, you know, promote what they're working on and then connect them with the brands that we're working with in meaningful ways. Refinery29 is a team full of branded content wizards. One of their most successful creations is called 29 Rooms. So 29 Rooms yeah. is our interactive funhouse of style, culture, and technology. Basically, you know, we take over these wild spaces and build out 29 different rooms that bring to life the different topics that we cover in our content. And we partner with artists to create this really immersive, um, you know, wondrous space. It's amazing. I've been. Thank you. Yeah. Which, which year did you come? Uh, the first year, actually. Oh, great. The launch year. Nice. And it's gotten better and better. Yeah. Tell me how hard it is to put something like that together. The event started because we, we were celebrating our 10-year anniversary as a digital brand. And we were thinking about how do we bring our brand to life in a physical space. Um, because our roots were in style, we wanted to disrupt Fashion Week. And we wanted to take that time period, which is typically very exclusive and create an inclusive experience that was a gift to our audience who, you know, are our, you know, reason for being and who have supported us yeah. over, you know, all of these years. And may not have access actually to the yeah. kinds of things that you all do. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we wanted to give them access to the event during Fashion Week, you know, to bring them into Fashion Week. But we didn't only want to focus on style because we as a brand have become, you know, 360 degrees of a woman's life. So we, we kind of had this brainstorm where we put up all these things. We put up our brand values of imagination, inclusivity, um, individuality, impact. We put up sort of some different, you know, kind of different milestones in our history. And we put up the goals that we had for the event, you know, to disrupt Fashion Week, to create something inclusive, to bring our brand to life and to bring in, you know, brand partners and um, amazing voices. And so we kind of had this whole map and we actually went back to the very beginning of Refinery29, which started as this map of independent boutiques. And there were 29 different spaces on the map. And we said, what if we created a space that had 29 different, you know, physical spaces, mm -hmm. um, like this virtual map that we had, but filled those with artists that really spoke to the different topics that we cover in our content. It's amazing. So that's how the idea was born. And it was so hard, <laughs> so hard to make it happen that first year. I bet the first year was the hardest. It's always the hardest. Oh. But now you've created this franchise yeah. that people really look forward to. The marketplace certainly knows what it is. Has it become a business for for the brand outside of your regular business? Yeah, it's definitely, it's it's one of the fastest growing parts of our business. Huge consumer demand for the event every year. This was the first year that we sold tickets, and we sold out the tickets in 24 hours. Wow. Like it's just congratulations. You know, thank you. That's major. Um, yeah, a huge demand, and also you know it's an amazing opportunity to work with brands and really help them to show their work in a new way and work with talent and help them to you know explore a different side of their creativity. So like this year, we worked with Janelle Monae, and this was her first art exhibit. So it was actually um, her art. Well, so the way we work with talent is we have this you know, amazing collaboration where, you know, we brainstorm with them what it is that they want to bring to life. Um, we, we educate them on what really works in our space and for our audience and what, you know, what we're all about. And 
yeah, we we brainstormed concepts. So we collaborated with her. She really wanted to talk about surveillance and conformity and culture. And, you know, we kind of go back and forth and send her renderings. And so she, she gives back. Yeah, she gives back notes. And mm. so it's a it's really a co-creation process. And that's how we work with um, brands as well. We hear from them, you know, what it is that is at the you know, core of their ethos or what it is that they want to promote. And then we share with them what works for our audience and for our event and kind of work together to co-create Which is always tricky with a brand. Yeah. Do you think their trust has gotten greater? Yeah, you know, I think um, the first year it was, you know, it was really hard. It was interesting because it actually wasn't that hard to bring talent in the first year. Like the artists really got it and we had amazing people collaborate. And that was great because we kind of needed that vote of confidence because, you know, when you're doing something so new, I could really see the vision. You know, I came up with the idea with a small group of people on the team and we all like we all saw it. We were living in it. Um, but it was really hard to get other people on board for them to really understand what it was we were talking about. Because when you're making something new that people haven't experienced, they just don't have a frame of reference. You know. But interestingly, talent really got it. So we got these amazing artists on board. And then we were able to bring brands on board as well. But that first year was harder to really have leverage to get them, you know, to understand what this was. And actually, you know, to, to so many brands credit, like, you know, a lot of the people that we worked with, like Disney, Minnie Mouse, they totally got it and let us do our creative thing. And it's like when that happens, then like it was like that room, like there were just like these waves and waves of cheers from people going into it and, and celebrating in their space. But, you know, there was other people that really pushed back and wanted something so specific or, you know, a lot of times brands want the biggest room and it's not. And I'm sure the location of the room is a big deal because they're looking at the map. There's all these nuances. But those are truly not the things that are the most important. Actually, some of our smallest rooms have been our most popular because it's not about the size. It's about the concept. It's about the way it makes people feel. It's about the interaction that you give people. So, But now it's become easier because we've done this for three years. You have the case you know, study. Brands, you one case study. Yeah, it's like brands tell us what their KPIs are and we know what is going to, you know, what levers they need to pull to get to those. So, yeah, we have so many more case studies at this point, um, both positive and we have, you know, examples of things that didn't work. So that's really helped and makes it easier. And, you know, brands sign up because they want to create an authentic experience that resonates with consumers. They want to create social shareability. They want to create brand affinity, um, whatever it is that, you know, are their goals. You know, it behooves them to collaborate with us and to listen to us because that's how we get to the result. And we want them to be successful. To take a closer look into the 29 Rooms creative process, I spoke to Kara Price. She co-founded an online reading community called Bellatrist with actress Emma Roberts, and they had an entire room dedicated to their brand at the last 29 Rooms event. I was discussing Bellatrist overall with Refinery, and we thought it was a perfect opportunity to sort of blend Emma's passion with reading and also sort of tout our new brand that we were trying to build and and you know, the power of storytelling, which is something that's very important to the 29 Rooms sort of messaging, especially this year. The theme was around storytelling, and so, you know, they approached us to do something, a a whole room, actually, that wasn't branded as some of the other ones were, but that was sort of this standalone room in collaboration with Emma and Bellatrice. 
they understand our love for Joan Didion and that her book was our first pick. And so they quickly sort of presented the idea to us that this typewriter, like a very large scale typewriter, be the centerpiece of the room. And we had a quote, you know, the very famous Joan Didion quote, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. They sort of had it coming out of the typewriter and, and they pitched that to us. And obviously we fell in love with the idea. And then there were other elements that we were able to add. Like they did a wall in the back of the room that was covered in blank notebooks and people could come in and write down a little message or, you know, a very, very, very short form story uh, or their name or where they were from. And I think the room was really dedicated to the importance of storytelling, thinking about storytelling. That was a really cool experience for us. And it, you know, helped us get the word about Bellatrix out there as well. It was like a really interesting branding tool for us. And I think that was part of our impetus for doing it too, because it was everywhere. And I think that's part of the experience. I think it's something that's extremely shareable. And, you know, for us, we understand the power of that. And, you know, we had this very large scale typewriter in our room that I think people really like to be photographed in front of. And it was a really nice way to get the story of the room and a Bellatrist out there. After the 29 Rooms event, we definitely saw a spike in followers and also in impressions and posts about, about Bellatrist. First, I would really like to thank Refinery29 for having me be a part of this movement, the 67% Project. Anytime that I say the word 67%, I want everybody to participate and say we're here, okay? So I say 67%, we're here. Perfect, thank you. Last month, I came home to my apartment after a very long day at work. I went to check the mailbox and what do I spy with my little eye? A fashion magazine. And in the entire 330 page issue, there are only two women whose bodies look like mine. Less than 1%. That's it. That's how it always is. At most, plus-size women make up 2% of media images, when in America, those above a size 14 make up 67% of those women. In what world is that diversity? A 67% project came out of um, the knowledge that 67% of women in the U.S. are size 14 and up, and yet media only and advertising only represent them 1% to 2%. So we just saw this you know, huge divide there, and as a brand that you know, celebrates individuality, that wants to make women feel included and make sure that they're seen and that they feel valued, um, we realized that that disparity was, you know, was unacceptable and was creating shame and doing a lot of harm. Mm -hmm. And we actually audited our own site. And e even though we've been really focused on inclusive image making for, for many years, um, and we shoot a lot of plus size women in our own photography, because of the fact that we're pulling a lot of different stock pictures and um, and all of that, we saw that actually on our site, we were only at 8%, wow. which was vastly more than the, the mainstream, but still- Almost not enough. But still, yeah, very much not enough. Um, so we launched the 67% project, which is now our, the 67% 
Promise um, because we wanted to really focus on doing better with plus size um, representation in our content. Um, and it actually also resulted in um, a partnership with Lane Bryant and Ari to bring that promise to life. And we also worked with Getty because we, um, you know, we've been doing our own stock archive for refinery so that we could create inclusive images. But we, you know, when we looked at that percentage, we realized that actually part of the issue was that stock images weren't inclusive. Um, So we launched the No Apologies collection with Getty Images so that, um, you know, so it's a we called it no apologies because we don't think women should have to apologize for who they are, they what shouldn't. they look like. They absolutely shouldn't. And um, yeah, it's been an incredible project, and it, 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 you know, these images are now available to any um, brand or publisher that wants to use them. So we're hoping to really change, you know, what the visual landscape looks like across all different industries. Tell me what the future of Refinery looks like. What's the next stage of disruption for you as it relates to your audience and yeah. the platform? Well, so we recently ran this article, which was one of the most inspiring things that I've read in a really long time, and not just because it was on Refinery, <laughs> um, but it was by um, this woman, Danielle Kayembe, and our author, Beret Lamb. And it was called The Silent Rise of the Female Economy. And it's this incredible piece that really, you know, points out the disparity, the fact that, you know, 85% of consumer spending is influenced by women, but only 2% of venture funding goes to women's innovation and women's companies. But instead of just focusing on the inequality, what I love about this piece is that it really focuses on the opportunity. It focuses on the wave of disruption that is coming because of that disparity, you know, because women live their lives in a world that is created with men as the default user. And every single day, we experience things from opening doors to watching television that aren't built for us. And those pain points are actually all business opportunities. So I read this piece and it just, I mean, everyone, everyone should read I'm it. read it immediately after. Yes, that. everyone should read it. It is so inspiring and enlightening. And if you're an investor, you should absolutely read it. But what excites me about it is just is the opportunity there. And I think for Refinery, we want to be a place, we are an optimistic brand, and I think that it's important to us to model what that future looks like. Um, What does matriarchal society look like? How can we support women's innovation? How can we support women creators? And so for me, that's what's most exciting is really creating all these different opportunities from, you know, the Shatterbox film anthology to our work with women comedians in this platform we have called Riot to 29 Rooms and, you know, content yeah. Beyond. Talk to me a little bit about the anthology project, because it sounds like you're thinking about ways to incubate talent across a bunch of different disciplines, all against the mission of empowering females. Yeah. You know, similarly to this article that I loved, we look at areas of inequality like the 67% project or hearing that, you know, learning that 7% of the top 250 films um, were directed by women and you know we hear these inequalities and then we think about how do we approach them and how do we create a different reality um, so that that's how we launched 67% project and that's how we launched Shatterbox which is in response to the women director inequality we said okay why don't we create a program that helps women directors get their films out there get get their films funded get their films on television get their films you know backed by brands and so Shatterbox is in its second season 
And um, we've worked with a ton of incredible filmmakers, um, some of them doing their first films for us, like Chloe Sevigny, um, Gabori Sidibe, Yara Shahidi has a film with us in the second season. We're providing the funding and the support for women to make films, and they are, you know, they're their creatively driven projects. We partnered uh, with Turner for those projects to be on TV, and Dove Chocolate came on, and we worked with them. You know, we created a film, and then we created a film with them. So the director did both her own artistic project and then a beautiful branded project for them. So again, it's just looking at these areas that where things aren't as we want them to be, where they aren't equal, and finding an opportunity to start to shift that imbalance and start to level the playing field. I want to thank Piera for a fantastic conversation and taking the time to join us today. To stay up to date with Piera, follow her on Instagram at Piera Luisa, P-I-E-R-A-L-U-I-S-A. Mobilizing Culture is a production of Cargo and At Will Radio. You can follow Cargo on Twitter at Cargo and on Instagram at Cargo Mobile. Please visit Cargo.com. That's K-A-R-G-O.com to stay up to date with all the latest. Next time on Mobilizing Culture. Can we build a brand that delivers great design and great product, but for a fraction of the price? You were really good, by the way. Oh, thank you. You're welcome.